0: Chapter Two, Matthew Chapter Two, verses one and two. Each of the Gospels speak to the coming of Christ in a different way. They speak to a different aspect or an element of His coming. Today we're going to look at Matthew. Matthew was introducing a King. Amen. Matthew was introducing the incoming King, but we're going to just take a, a narrow view here and. Um, You were here Wednesday, you will definitely understand why we're going the way we're going. But I feel like we are to just kind of come off of that service and recap a little bit about worshiping the King. Matthew 2 and 1 says, Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born King of Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I want to draw our topic today from that last portion. We are come to worship him. Amen. Perhaps you have seen the the manger scenes that have been erected, that have been positioned sometimes in places of prominence. There was a time when our cities would position these uh, on the town squares. Uh, Often you will find them in the yards of churches, illuminated at night and lit up. Sometimes you will see living scenes of nativity. You will see where they have taken... uh, They have taken real live animals, and they will create a scene with live persons who will sit outside in a simulated scene of the nativity, and you will see the shepherds that have gathered there. You will see the positioning of Mary, Joseph, and the baby, and often you will see uh, the wise men, or as we have made them to be known in modern carols, the three kings from afar. But uh, there, there's a lot that we could open up and discuss about these uh, persons and who they were, where they are from. The Bible does let us know that they had come from the east. Uh, they were of Orient. And so uh, I, I don't want to delve too deep into who they might have been, but it has been speculated that these were holy men from afar, that at least at this portion in time that these were sincere men who sought God in all, but the Bible tells us emphatically that they saw a star. It has been supposed that they would not have been at the scene of his birth, but came at a later time. But That's not as important to the message today as what happened when they approached. Having traveled some great distance following a star in the night sky that led them to where they understood there would be a king that was born. The Bible tells us that they would follow this star into this region. They would come before a king that was a political puppet of his day. He was positioned in such a way simply as a token to the Jewish people under the rule of the Roman government. And so he lived in his palace and he experienced a life that was posh, but as he went through his mechanisms of his daily existence, uh, he He just enjoyed the pomp and the circumstances of his facade of royalty. And so it was threatened by the arrival of these three who with their entourage, came forward seeking the king that was born. Amen. We find that this king terrified of this news, knowing that in his family and of his lineage there was no, new king to be born. And so who was this stranger that was threatening his throne? And he sought of the counsel of the wise of his kingdom. He sought the counsel of the spiritual of his kingdom, and sure enough, they went backwards in time to the prophets of old, and they said that it is in the city of Bethlehem that there is one to be born that would be called the king of the Jews. Obviously, there there was a connotation, they were thinking of a political Opponent who would rise and throw them off of the king, not realizing that this final and forever king of Israel would not be one of a political entity, but one that would be spiritual, that would rule and reign forever, and he still does in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so he was threatened, and he sought of these three to find this one that they, they came to worship. And when you do, let us know. We want to worship him as well. Of course, this was a conspiracy among his council, because they actually sought his location and identity that they, they may destroy him. And so it was that as they had been led by the star, these men were still led until they found where this child was. And the Bible says that seeing him, they fell and they worshipped him. However, the mercy and the grace of God and his ability, he warned them not to return to the king or the way that they come, but to return to their land a different way. And so they did. That is the essence of the story of the three wise men in a nutshell today. But I want to consider for a few moments this morning this story from a particular viewpoint. We find that 33 and a half years later that there would be a Roman governor who would ask, what do I do with Jesus? Pontius Pilate, who was the governor He was the Roman prelate of this land and he was charged with one singular purpose and that was simply to keep the peace. He was not worried about the plans of the future or the history of the past. He was simply there to make sure there were no uprisings or anything that challenged the government that had put him in position. And so it was that the crowds of the Hebrew nation had risen up in anger and frustration at this one who called himself the king of the Jews. And so it was that he sought to bring about peace and he is trapped between his own findings where he would say to himself, I find no fault in him. Yet he wanted to bring about harmony among the people. And he was caught in this position. What do I do with Jesus? And so it was, we find that he was caught in the conflict of Christ. And he wondered, what do I do? This, this is nothing new because from the time of Christ's birth there was the question of what would we do with Jesus we find that there were three responses to the birth of Christ first was the hostility of king Herod who thro- thought his throne was threatened second we find the indifference of the councils of the priest and the council and the scribes who were not interested in someone who was born so peasantly and and they were not looking for the Messiah in the form in which he came but thirdly we see the adoration of those who had traveled some distance to a Savior that they would not know from history or legacy, but they were simply following something that was in their spirit and heart that could not be dismissed. And I propose to you this morning that such responses still dwell among us today. I find that when we are confronted with Christ in the spirituality, even as. Certain Services as we have experienced today. That there is something that can rise up in our spirit. That we feel this is nonsense and this is not necessary. And why is it that there is something that wells up within our humanity that says this is ridiculous and there is no reason to become so exuberant to act as we have or to surrender our life to Christ? No, thank you. Simply not. Interested, And I have even seen a response of violence as people turn their heart away from God and walk out angrily. Why? Simply because this is and can be a response to the Savior. I've also seen people leave in indifference. It's It's good to hear the songs. It's nice to come together. It's good to be a part of community, but it really doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't change my life. My life will go on tomorrow as it did today and the day before because it's wonderful to come together with people and it's nice to have a common interest in Scripture. But what does it really mean to my daily life? All the Bible is is a book of antiquity. It's just old uh, old sacred pages and, and God is somewhere in the celestials, but it has nothing to do do with my daily existence. And so we live onward in a place of indifference. It's nice to know there's a God out there somewhere, but I'm just going to live tomorrow as I did today and today as I did yesterday. And it's not going to make a difference, but I'm thankful today that there's another response that is open to each and every one of us. And that is to reach into the recesses of our spirit and our heart and to open up the door of our spirit to the existence of one that is greater than we have ever known in any other capacity. One who came to save his people from their sins and that includes me and that includes you. One who came to bring life and that more abundantly. One who came to undo the works of the adversary, our enemy and Satan. And so it is when we open the door of our heart to our Lord. and Savior, when we give Him access to our spiritual side, I propose to you there is an emotional reaction to which we may not be prepared. I've seen people set up on these very pews and wonder, why is it that I am compulsed and I am compelled to cry and weep? Why am I having such an emotional reaction? Why do I feel what I feel? What is it that is in this place? It is more than the beauty, the harmony, and the excellence of the songs that we sing. It is more than the camaraderie of those that that we have gathered together with as companions in worship. It is more than simple emotion, but there is something that we have done when we open our heart to our God. We have begun to break down walls that we have erected that have protected us from harm that have protected us from being abused by others, that have protected our emotion and our mental state but we have allowed him in beyond the armor that we have used for all these years to keep us in a place that we thought was safe. Don't be surprised when you open the door of your heart that you might feel something or experience something that you have never felt before. But I propose to you this morning that it's not just a one way street but it is something that we can give as much as we receive and today the peace of God has fell in this place and it is enveloped each and every one of you the power of God is moving and ministering in this house to enable us to overcome the things of this life the joy and the hope of God seeks and it desires to fill your spirit, amen, with dreams of possibility. But it's not just what we receive, but I say to everyone that is in this house, so can we give back to him as much as we have been given we can give amen and we do so in our adoration for the bible says of these who came from the east even though they truly did not know who it was they were seeking they did not know his identity they did not know his name all they knew was there was one that had come that was greater than they and all of their circumstances that they wanted to come to know And they wanted to worship. And so the Bible says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. They (laughs) rejoiced. Amen. This word by itself could simply mean "word the rejoice, could simply mean to be glad, and so they were. But it continues to speak to their passion when it says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. In the economy of words in the Scripture, there are so many pages, there are just so many words in this thing we call the Bible. And so when anything is mentioned, I believe it is worth our examination. And we we see the context of their joy. This passage that lets us know that their rejoicing was with exceeding great joy. Amen. It is noted and recorded for all of time. And we are recipients of its word today that their, their experience was one Of exuberance. This was not something that just simply creased the corners of their mouth with a slight grin or smile. This is not something that they appreciatively nodded their head and said, Oh, this is a good thing. But they were overwhelmed. And they were overcome with the emotion of their joyfulness. And I propose to you in this house that for every heart that has been hurt and hardened, that there is such an experience that can cause such a jubilation in your spirit that we can be overwhelmed and overcome with joy. I believe that for some this is an experience perhaps that seems foreign because we've never encountered anything that could produce such elation and joy. But when we come in contact with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the mighty God in Christ, Amen. there is a reaction and a response that can produce a joy like we have never seen before. I want you to understand the Bible says it is joy that is unspeakable. It is beyond speaking. It is beyond comprehension. It is beyond the ability of words. But it's not useless. But the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen. There's something about this joy that not only is it exuberant, not only does it push us past our limitations of self-expression and cause us to move into a place of putting our hands together and celebration, calls us to rise to our feet and calls us to shout with a loud voice, but it will also produce a power and a strength in us to overcome. For you see, we may have a will to do right. We may have a desire to live right. We may know that we should act and speak right, but we also know that we are powerless to do so. But the Bible said that His strength that comes to us uh, is in the form of a joy that overwhelms us uh, and is beyond comprehension and speaking. And I propose to you today, it is possible to live in a state of joyfulness that is not only an emotional high, but it is a power and a strength uh, that will get you through the darkest of your days, uh, your greatest of temptations, uh, and the hardest things of which you can endure. The joy of of the Lord is my strength. How do you do the hard things of which we are challenged to do? It's because I received of Him a joy that empowers me and enables me to overcome. <laughs> Verse 11 tells us that they went on, for the Bible says they were come to the house and they saw. And they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We understand that the gifts that they brought to him, though unusual in our Uh, modern world. They were not only uh, uh, valuable, of great expense, but they were incredibly appropriate. They were considerate. In other words, they were thoughtful. And these gifts that were given "'of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. "'The gold recognized his royalty. "'The frankincense was speaking to his priestly existence. "'And even though they could not fully comprehend "'and understand the magnitude of what they brought, "'the myrrh was that which was used to treat the dead, "'and it would speak of the fact that he came "'that he might die in our place for our sin.'" But we see in this approach in which they came toward him lessons from which we can extrapolate and learn that are still as powerful in this day in which we live right now as they have ever been evermore. For the Bible says that when they saw the young child. May I say that the first thing that any of us can experience is what they did that day when they saw Him. This may seem simple. In fact, it may seem so simplistic. It it, it may make you wonder at what I'm trying to say. I understand. I realize that there is nothing that reduces us to a puddle uh, uh, of silliness, like an infant. We will make an utter fool of ourselves. We will make faces. We will make noises. We will contort ourselves. We will act foolish, utterly, completely foolish in the presence of an infant or a small child because there is something about their response. They are learning uh, all the synopsis, they are learning their reactions, they are learning their. own emotions. And so with the crinkling of the eyes and the widening of their smile, we will do anything we can to elicit these responses out of that child. It doesn't matter who the audience is or who's watching or who's around. We will perform like a fool because of a child. I believe that the response that they had when they saw him, it went however beyond this. This is not just simply because there's an infant or a child in their presence, but I believe that they saw him. It wasn't just that they saw visually a baby in the arms of a mother, but somehow there is a connection between the star that they have been following and the one that they see in this humble setting. Why is a king in this place? Why are there they're not noblemen lined up because they understood that He would serve a kingdom that is not of this world. Somehow, this is a moment of revelation and understanding because they saw Him. And so it introduces the first element of worship that I want to talk about for just a moment, and that is of wonder. Isaiah, the prince and prophet, would tell us that there is something about Him him, are talking about our God and his identity that we must comprehend yet today. And that is, I propose, the first name of God. Because when Isaiah goes through the litany of who he is, speaking of the one who would be called the everlasting father and the mighty God, he starts off with his name shall be called wonderful. And so it is. And yet today we must understand that the awe of who He is and the wonder of His majesty and the sense of being overwhelmed at the one of whom we speak. He is not a God among many. He is not just another God. But He is the one and only God. There is no other God beside Him. There is none other like Him. There is none to whom He can be compared. I'm not trying to just rile you up emotionally but I'm stating a fact uh, and I'm creating right now a foundational understanding that we have got to come to the conclusion He is incomparable He is matchless Uh, Amen. and when we see Him for who He is uh, when we recognize the wonder of the one it is uh, that we have come into His presence Uh, a few minutes ago when we were singing the songs, and we were moved by emotion, and we were overwhelmed by what we feel. May I tell you it's more than just goosebumps and good feelings, but it is the King of all kings. It is the Lord of all lords. It is the mighty God that stepped into this place. And as David would look into the celestials and wonder, who am I that you would even be mindful of me, and that you would consider me? That is the kind of wondering all that I want to have every time I feel His presence and every time I hear His name and every time I sense His voice. Lord who am I that you would choose me and who am I that you would visit me and who am I that you would call on me and who are we that He would walk into this house as the guest of honor. Who are we that He would walk through us with our darkest trials and our longest nights and who are we that that He would be considerate of everything that we would deal with, that He would know the pain that we suffer and the hardships that we endure. Who are we? But when we consider that the God of all heaven is moved by compassion for what we deal with and we suffer, then I consider in awe, my God, what a privilege it is to know You. Only... When we see Him. Same one who wrote and said, His name is to be called Wonderful. Isaiah writes, From a place of vulnerability and transparency, He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Most likely a relative of his, A hero of his, A mentor of his, Now this king has passed away. Situations concerning were not good, and so it could have been that he might have been bitter, frustrated, irritated, and angry. But in his time of loss, grief, and suffering, the Bible says he went into the house of God. Lord, I don't know what's going on and I don't know why you would allow this, but I do know one thing. There's no place I can go like your house to find the answers. And it was in that moment that the presence of the Lord filled the room for the Bible says it shook and quaked. Angels filled that place with singing, holy, 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 the Lord God almighty. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw him high high and exalted in his glory filled the place. Let me tell you what has happened in this house more than once. but We have experienced it again today, and that is the glory of God filled this house. Amen. His glory that filled that place was the victories that had been won that he would win. Amen. And so we are still recipients of that glory yet today. And when that glory filled the house, we find that I Isaiah comes out with this remark, I saw him high and lifted up. Let me just just say what I'm trying to say. It is impossible, I believe, to truly worship him without seeing him. Amen, amen, amen. And it matters more how we see him than we see ourselves. Bible tells us of when Jesus encountered a man of Gadara. This man had been stripped naked due to his mental state. His state of mind was one that had been addled by demons and oppressive spirits. He was chained and the chains had been broken. And he lived maniacally as a wild man in this wilderness place among the tombs. But the Bible says when he saw Jesus, when he, I I, I can't emphasize this enough. We have got to see him. This man was a demoniac. This man was controlled by a thousand devils. This man was living a life that was disorderly. This man was the antithesis of everything we would consider a good or godly person to do. It did not matter as much his state of being or where he was. Amen. And and so we got to understand this as worshipers. It's not as much as where we are as much as how we see him. Ah, Somebody needs to get a hold of that right now because you have lived in a prison of how you see yourself. You can't get past what you've done, the mistakes you've made, and the past that is behind you. And every time you go to lift your hands, guilt and shame tell you. You're not worthy to worship. You're not worthy to praise Him. You have no right. You have no ability. Put your hands down. You don't belong here. You don't fit in. God's not interested in you, and He doesn't care about you. That's what guilt and shame, that's what sin and sorrow and sadness whisper. But the Bible tells us, amen, that this man, when he saw him in his state, it was not the state he was in, but it was how he saw the Lord. What I'm trying to tell you today, it is a trick of the devil to get your eyes on who you are, where you've been, and how you've lived. Get your eyes upon him, because we you see him for who he is he has come to where you are to transform your life to change you forever and he will leave you differently than he found you but we gotta get our eyes off of who we are what we've done where we've been and how we've lived and we gotta get our eyes upon Him because if you can see Him if you can behold Him if you can look upon Him, amen, if you can see Him for who He is He is glorious, He is God, He is great in mercy, He is kind in nature, He is able to deliver everybody He is victorious over sin, disease, and death if you can put Him where He belongs, how and lift it up, uh, then your life can be transformed by an encounter with the Savior. And so it matters in our worship how we see Him because the response to truly seeing Him, amen, the response to truly seeing Him. He is exalted and we are humbled. See, some people ask for humility. The Bible says we should be humble. We should be lowly. Does not mean we're self punishing, does not mean we mentally beat ourselves up. Humility is not beating ourselves down, humility is about putting Him where He belongs. And it changes the perspective of who we are. When David beheld the glory of God, he said, who am I? Amen. There's something about putting God where he belongs. It puts us in our proper position of humility and so exalting him is essential because it positions us where we need to be. Amen. We find the Bible says, and they fell down and worshiped. The connotation of worship in all of these words is one of bowing a, and coming before him. Literally, in the culture of which we speak of their time, it meant kissing the ground. They would put themselves so far down toward the ground that their, their face would be upon the soil. And And so it was that when you come before a potentate or of royalty that you would literally bow to the point that your face would be in the earth and so it was that this awe and wonder of who he was when they saw him and saw him for who he is it put them in a position of humility amen and this is essential for worship because we cannot worship him high and exalted for the Bible says that every proud thing lifteth itself up against God. Pride puts us against God. We cannot worship that which we are against or we are positioned against but humility takes us off of our pedestal, puts him where he belongs and puts us in a place of worship. John the Baptist who we would know that in this earthly realm would be literally the cousin of Christ himself Himself. But and, and, and perhaps they had spent time in their youth or childhood together. But there was something that was different after they'd went through the Jordan River experience. Amen. John had preached and taught there's one coming of which I'm not even worthy to lace his shoes. When Jesus demanded that he be baptized of John, John said, no, I can't do this. It's not my place to do so. But he did so to be obedient. To the scripture. And then John would say, as the crowds would grow behind Jesus and diminish behind himself, he would say, This, he must increase as I decrease. There is something that is proportionate in worship. Hear me today. Worship, we talked about Wednesday, is clapping hands, yes, singing unto the Lord, yes, demonstratively behaving in such a way that He is glorified. But can I tell you that we cannot properly worship unless that there is a proportionate increasing and decreasing. And the higher He becomes the lower we become. The more He is exalted the more we are humbled. But we are not broken by this nor are we diminished by this because we understand that we are in the presence of the Most High King. And the reason that John could say this, that I must Decrease and he must increase is again because he saw him. It is imperative that we, as worshipers, see him for who he is, and then it positions us in the proper position to praise. And then, for the reason for which they come, the Bible says that when they saw him, when they had bowed and worshiped him, the Bible says, then they opened up their treasures, and they presented the gifts of which we have already spoken. There's something about wonder of the awe of who he is and the humility that that produces that it opens up the recesses of our heart, and it allows us to access the treasures which are within Jesus said, for where your treasure is, is your heart also. Your heart follows what you treasure. What you treasure. All of us have a treasure. All of us have things inside of us that mean something. It's it's incredible. It's incredible the prices we will pay for things that bring us joy or that entertain us. If you go online, look at the marketplace. To see what people will pay. I saw something for sale just last night, and I thought it was a misprint. There was a ridiculous price for an old piece of metal, and then I realized there are people that will pay exorbitant prices for anything because it means something to them. That y- useless piece of metal, you couldn't give it to me. It's not worth anything but scrap, but to the right person, because it's what they treasure, because there is a significance and a meaning to them. It means something to them that it does not to me, and each of us have a treasure within. There are things inside of you that are different than the things that are inside of me, and so they are locked behind. You don't don't put your treasures out on the curb. You don't leave your treasures out in the yard, but you put them in a place that is safe. You secure them. You lock them up. You keep them from prying eyes. You keep them from sticky fingers. And you keep them in places where they're safe and secure. And all of us have that vault within us today where we keep the things that we treasure. And it is possible to come to church and go through the motions of praise and never unlock our heart. But if we are truly in awe of who He is and if we are truly in a place of humility the next step is that we will open up our heart and that place where we keep and contain our treasures and we will open our treasures unto them. Why? Because I'm just going to be honest, that true worship, true worship, even the Bible says, he come and he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And true worship is not cheap. It's not cheap. That'd be a lot easier this morning to preach to you a quick, flashy message that makes us all stand to our feet and clap our hands, but I'm just going to come down to where reality is today. Amen. The Bible says that there was a man who loved the Lord with all of his heart until the Lord said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to sell all you have and give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. What was this? This was a test. This was a revealing of his heart. This man had a lock on his heart that he did not even himself understand. It wasn't that God needed him to sell all of that. It wasn't that God demanded it because the poor needed it. It was a revelation to him of what he truly valued. There are those of us today who have said, Lord, Lord. There are those of us today who have raised our hands and worshiped him. But could it be that there are some things that are locked up in our heart that if the Lord would to shine a light upon our spirit and soul and say, why don't you hand that thing over? suddenly the noise that we've been making would cease and we would become silent because there are things that we have locked up on the inside that mean something to us that we do not even understand. But God says, if you're going to be completely mine and I'm going to be completely yours, then you got to sell out. you got to sell out. I've got news for you. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in God. You can't have a divided mind. For the Bible says a person with a divided mind is unstable in all their ways. We've got to come to the conclusion that if I'm going to follow Him, I'm going to have to sell out. You can't love this world and love the Lord. You can't be double in your devotion and divide it in your mind. At some point, at some point, like the rich young ruler, we got to decide, is this thing worth selling out for? But I've got to tell you, whatever it costs you to follow Christ, Whatever it costs you to walk with Him, whatever it costs, it's going to be worth it all. And I've come to tell you, it may cost us something, but it will be worth it. I'm not talking about monetary value. I'm not talking about how much money can you put in a pan. I'm not talking about earthly treasures. But I like what the psalmist said, Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. I can't give him half a praise. I can't give him a partial song. I can't give him some adoration. But I've got to empty myself. i got to pour myself out. I've got to give him everything that is within me. For the same psalmist said, I will offer a sacrifice of price, uh, uh, praise and I will pay for my offering. Let me give you a quick example. David comes to a place in his kingdom. David is a monarch. He is a king. He is a powerful man. And he has become wealthy from a position of poverty per se. And now he is, he is he's, he's such a mighty man and powerful. He, he, he comes to this position. It's time to sacrifice and offer unto the Lord. And 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 he does so in a threshing floor in a farm owned by this man named Ornan. And he says, This is where we need to worship. And can you imagine the honor bestowed upon this landowner that King David, the mighty king, would want to choose your farmyard to, to, to be the place where you're going to worship God? And he's like, Whatever you need, King. We got it. We you want animals? You want stones to build an altar? Whatever you want, it's yours. Just just tell us what you want. And David looked at him and said, yeah, "No, no, 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 no. You're not gonna. You're not gonna give me what I need to sacrifice." He says, "Because I'm not gonna offer him anything. that cost me nothing." And 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 it's a reality that walking with God and serving God and living a life that is sacrificial before Him, it's going to cost you. You're not going to be able to go wherever you want to go. You're going to walk through some doors and the Spirit of God that was going to dwell in you is going to say, you probably shouldn't go there. You're going to start to say some stuff. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to say, you probably shouldn't say that. We may begin to participate in things that, to the human mind and comprehension, well, there's nothing wrong with this, but the Spirit that dwells in us. Because the holy cannot habitat with the carnal, and there comes a point in time we got to choose where are we going with this. And there's going to be some stuff we have to walk away, going to be some stuff we have to pull out let me tell you something there's some hurts and there's some wounds and there's some bitterness and there's some anger and there's some frustration that if we're going to walk in the spirit and live in the spirit it's going to cost us something to leave it and to not hold those feelings and not to hang on to those wounds spirit of God begin to make something evident in my spirit and my heart and my life this week is that still an issue Is that still something that i got to lay aside? I didn't even know it was a problem. But if His Spirit is going to dwell within me, it's going to cost me something to lay that out and to open myself up and to bear myself and say, God, I'm willing, whatever it costs, I want my life to be a worship unto you. The vulnerability, the transparency, the willingness to empty ourselves. It cost us something as we stand all over this house. So one last thing about being a worshiper in such a way. The Bible says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Another way. Encountering the king, whichever response we adopt, I've lived long enough to see that in a service like this, something can rile up inside of someone and say, I don't like this, I don't like think about this, I don't want anything to do with this. And we can be surprised at the hostility that rises within us to which we are tempted to respond. We can be like King Herod and become angry at the god who came to save us we can be indifferent take it or leave it hang a little cross from the mirror have a little verse or two on our social media we all believe in god just it just is what it is but we're never affected and we're never changed or we can become worshipers that are helped and healed any time that there was anyone who saw Him, who encountered Him in His life and ministry upon this earth, they were affected and they left differently because of it. Yes, there were those who were angered. Yes, there were those who were even disappointed and walked away frustrated. But there were those who were healed and changed and they walked away different forever. The Bible tells us the Bible tells us of those who were lame from the beginning of their life until they met him and they walked home from where they had been carried. The Bible tells us of those who had been blind from the time of their birth until they saw him with eyes that are now seeing and the city marveled and wondered at the healing that had happened. The Bible tells us the funeral processions that were stopped because of His presence and widows were returned, their sons who had died but were now alive. Can you imagine how differently they went home after encountering a Savior? And when we encounter Him and see Him and are humbled by His presence and worship Him, it causes us to leave differently than we came. I'm asking you today, how will you leave? What will you do with the Savior? I'm not asking whether you want to join the church or whether you feel like you want to be Pentecostal, but I'm asking you, what will you do with Jesus of whom we have sang and talked and preached about today? What will you do for the one? who came that He might be your Savior, who has come to where you are, who has illuminated things to your spirit. As I've preached to you, things have come to you, and you thought, how did they tell Him? How does He even know that about me, to speak in such a way? And I don't. I don't know a thing about you. And as I preach, I don't see anybody that I'm preaching to, but some of you feel like I've looked at you this whole time. It's not because I have. It's because God was trying to let you know. He's talking to you. He wants you to hear what What he's saying, that this message is for you to get in your heart to make a change in your life. But now I've gone as far as I can, and I just come to this point in this place. What will you do with him? It's the question that Pilate asked. It's the conundrum we face right now. What are you going to do with him today? I want to invite you to respond.